really sensing how uh, there's more movement you know in our collective uh, organism than there has been and how actually it's quite nice to just come in here and sit and be quiet again to have a pause and slow down So congratulations, you've made it. It's the <laughs> last evening of our retreat together. I imagine sometimes it feels like it's gone incredibly slowly and other times you just don't know where the time has gone. Perhaps you're just starting to settle in. <laughs> or you might be really, really looking forward to going home. Or sometimes we're such a paradox, aren't we? It's probably all those, all those voices are on the on the board that Yuka spoke about last night. I was um, really struck by one of the comments and many of the comments in your very moving sharing this afternoon, but uh, one of the, the collective pieces of wisdom that it, it takes a lot of effort to learn how to live easy. <laughs> and... Uh, really want to salute your efforts in that and uh, to say that this is not a new problem and actually I came across a poem from one of the um, early Buddhist nuns one of the collections in the Pali Canon in the earliest um, discourses is a or the earliest um, collection of Buddhist literature is a collection of poems by the first enlightened monks and the, and the early enlightened nuns. And uh, so here's one from somebody whose name was Genta, which means conqueror. And I get the impression from the way that she talks to herself that she was a bit of a striver. <laughs> so she says, this is from a translation by um, Matty Weingast, who's an old friend and... Uh, um, member of the IMS community and it's, the book is actually coming out next month but uh, it's a very lovely collection anyway so this is what Genta the conqueror had to say I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me to walk this path you will need seven friends mindfulness curiosity courage joy calm stillness and perspective. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way round. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? Oh, my heart. You don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. So I actually want to talk about these seven friends that she mentions this evening. But um, a few more comments first before I get on to them. That um, you'll probably really... uh, we may have realized for some time or the realization probably uh, for me it just sort of sinks in again and again that this is really a lifetime's work in many ways and there are many ways that we can conceive of what the job is and what the path of practice is uh, but in essence really it's a, a gradual or it can be seen as in many ways as a, a gradual ripening and maturing of wholesome qualities in the heart and mind and a kind of weeding out of that which is um, disruptive, dysfunctional. We often use this metaphor of planting seeds and cultivating a garden. And so one of these progressive maps, for example, of how the practice matures is the, the list of qualities that we call the paramis, the, the perfections and this can offer a really really long term view of practice because these are ones that the Buddha is said to have spent many many lifetimes 
prior to his lifetime as the Buddha actually developing and practicing. And we've spoken about or um, you know, actively reflected on several of these. So these qualities are the qualities of generosity, of virtue or ethical conduct, of renunciation, of wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness. Uh, I like that one, honesty and self-honesty. Determination, metta and equanimity. And then there's also the sense in which just we've also been referencing a lot the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And that too really is, a, is presented as a, as a lifetime practice, a full practice. So uh, it begins and ends with a statement that this is the direct or the single or the complete path to awakening. It's the Pali is ekayana, which means one vehicle. And there's lots of kind of discussion over what exactly is meant by that. Is it like a one-way one way street? Is it, uh, does it saying that this is the only way? Or is it that it's a, it's a complete way? In any case, it's a long-term project. <laughs> so um, this morning, Yuka, Yuka said how we would kind of had slightly glossed over the, the fourth of the four foundations. And I'm, that's actually what I'm going to talk about um, tonight, principally. Some aspects of the, the fourth foundation, which is the mindfulness of dharmas or phenomena seen through the eyes of the Dharma, or you could say seeing the Dharma in phenomena. So it's not just a kind of random observation of phenomena, it's looking at them in very specific ways. And actually we've already covered um, some of this. So the Four Noble Truths, for example, that were the subject of Yuka's talk the other, on the first, uh, first talk, are actually one of the, the things that are, come under this heading in the, in the um, fourth foundation. There are various um, versions of it, or various um, uh, texts that have come down of it within different schools of Buddhism, and some of them contain more stuff under this heading, and some of them are more minimalist. But um, in some of them, it talks about the Four Noble Truths. It also talks about the six sense bases, eye, ear, tongue, eye, ear, nose, tongue. I'm getting mixed up, you know, the five senses and the mind. <laughs> this mind is quite tired. <laughs> and it talks about the senses and the fetter that arises dependent on them. And this is talking about that that. Um, link of the sense contact vedana and tanha craving and clinging that arises dependent on that so we've really reflected on and been observing that process happening and then all the versions of the the fourth foundation they also include the five hindrances these factors of sense desire and ill will of what's called sloth and torpor or dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry and doubt. And then the other thing that they all include is the, are these seven friends that were spoken about in the poem, which are known as the awakening factors. And actually, in some ways, this is another way of viewing the development of our practice over time, is a movement from spending more of our time in the territory of the hindrances to actually um, moving from these hindrances, from patterns of reactivity and the afflictive habits of mind, to spending more time dwelling with the qualities that illuminate and liberate our experience, which are called the awakening factors. And so if we you know, come back to the, the wonderful metaphor of the, the board members and the, 
the different voices running the company. It's as if we're gradually recruiting and empowering uh, more and more helpful and functional board members. And then the less helpful ones get slowly retired, or at least they, they no longer make so much trouble. And so this evening I want to just speak a little bit about these, these seven awakening factors. And some of you are very familiar with these lists. Some of you, this may feel like a lot of information, more information for the last night of the retreat. So I really encourage you to see this as kind of, this is a, a buffet dinner and you take what you have the appetite for this evening, knowing that this talk is recorded, you can listen to it again, you can easily Google seven awakening factors, you can find access to all this information, and if you keep coming back on these retreats, you'll be really tired of it within a few retreats. So you don't have to um, remember everything if it's unfamiliar to you. So these, these seven factors are the factor of mindfulness, the factor of investigation, which is called dhamma vichaya. So again, we have this word dhamma. It's specific. It's investigation of the dhamma. Uh, viriya, which is energy or persistence. Piti, which is rapture or joy, enjoyment. Pasadi, which is tranquility or calm. Samadhi, that we've been speaking a lot about, a sense of collectedness, stability, more often translated as concentration, and upeka or equanimity. And again, these, you know, these may be, this list may not be familiar to you, but all these qualities are things that you've already been practicing, working with. So just to, to kind of flesh out a little more about each one. Mindfulness, the first one. We can see how this is something that waxes and wanes, doesn't it, moment to moment. So Yuka was giving that wonderful clear description of awareness and attention this morning. I was thinking you can, you can notice the movements of attention within, within awareness. You can also, awareness can also notice the, the comings and goings of mindfulness. It can, it can notice when mindfulness has been absent. It can notice when mindfulness is present. Sometimes, confusingly, we, we use mindfulness and awareness synonymously. But actually, if you really look, there's a, there's a subtle difference. It's like mindfulness is a property within awareness. And it's about as we know, about knowing what's happening in the present moment, but within an overall context of um, you know, knowing uh, what is helpful, what's unhelpful, like there's a sort of qualitative evaluation to that knowing, not a judgment, but a discernment. And we come to learn through our practice to explore what supports more, more mindfulness and what actually supports mindlessness. And so a lot is made uh, out of skillful conduct, um, being really careful about what we imbibe both into our body and into our mind, you know, really affects the degree of set settledness and ability to be present. Mm. And then we can, we can skillfully cultivate reminders for ourselves to be mindful, aren't we? I mean, this, this whole place is set up with endless reminders to be mindful. And one of our challenges when we go back out into the, the outside world is to actually see, well, what can I do to remind myself to be as mindful as I was at IMS? You know? And we have to find our, our personal strategies and you know, setting times to actually remember to be mindful or places or perhaps particular activities that we engage in. And I suspect we might say a bit more about that tomorrow. So mindfulness itself is the first of the awakening factors and they kind of, they exist independently but there's also a sense in which one gives rise to another. When we're mindful 
we start looking to see, well, what, what is happening? The quality of investigation comes online. We even talk about curiosity, as, again, as being a, a property of mindfulness. You know, we become interested in what's happening and interested in the dharma of what's happening. So this kind of investigation that we're talking about as an awakening factor um, is an investigation that's supported by wisdom. You know, it's interested in what is a skillful and uh, skillful and happiness-inducing uh, mode of approach to whatever's happening and what isn't. One of the things that promotes this understanding is uh, the keeping of wise company, yeah. both in terms of people and in terms of our, our reading and our learning. So the, the capacity to investigate, to understand Dharma grows as, um, as our understanding grows. And this is fed by... Uh, it can be fed by study, it can be fed by uh, associating with people who, who are uh, also interested in these things. And it's said to frequently listen to and discuss the Dharma. Um, that, that is a, the primary support for the growth of wisdom. So bringing up this sense of curiosity and open-mindedness. The third factor is virya or energy. Also, um, you could think of it as being persistence, the willingness to keep engaging with what's here, to keep engaging with practice. Uh, in the poem, she actually calls it courage, and this is a, an aspect of it that I really like to reflect on. This, this practice takes a lot of courage. And I love that the, the, the root meaning of courage, it points us back to the heart, to the cur, and that courage is a heart quality that we need to um, bring forth as we do this. Determination, energy. So energy is something that we also, we learn a lot about through this practice of mindfulness, about how to bring our energy into balance, to kind of find an approach to doing things that is sustainable. To find a sustainable way of applying effort. One of the things that is particularly useful is to be around other people. You kind of, it's kind of like you know, walking a great a marathon. It's easier to do it with a group of people than on your own or running a marathon. Rather, we need to be around others who will encourage us, and uh, this can be difficult to find. You know, again, outside of the context of a place, a place like a retreat like this. But it, the more that we can do that, uh, the better. And then the fourth quality, pity, or uh, rapture, joy. This is the, the feeling of delight or joy that arises when our attention is really absorbed into something. And it can come out of, you know, investigating something, can't it, that really grabs our interest. You know, we get sort of enthusiastic about it and really absorbed into it. So it's, it's like a, the enthusiasm that arises um, out of our willingness to be with something and to really take an interest in it. And you might have noticed that even something that is, was initially unpleasant, when we start to get interested in it, actually just that interest itself can be an enjoyable experience. Not always, but, you know, I def definitely have had this. And uh, it was almost like a sort of saying yes to this. Yeah, okay, this is it, I'm with this. 
So the whole area of cultivating joy in our practice is really, really important. To just kind of broaden this out for a moment and um, really in, in, in terms of supporting the calming of the mind, supporting um, that sense of nourishment and well-being, how valuable it is, and may, we've been practicing this, to kind of turn the mind to what's pleasant, to what's uplifting, to practice things like gratitude, encouraging a reflection on gratitude at the end of each day, and to really give ourselves the time and the encouragement and the permission to take in what's good in our experience. To actually value joy for its own sake. So one of the things that can happen when we, when we are enjoying something and when we're joyful is we get carried away by it. You know, we can spin out into a kind of intoxicated kind of excitement or happiness. And this is actually moving in a different direction from the pity and the awakening factors. So pity actually, um, we want to kind of harness this to move ourselves towards tranquility and ease rather than uh, agitation, which kind of we get lost, we get tired, we get tripped up. But actually we can, we can harness that sense of happiness or well-being. And um, as one of my teachers, Carol Wilson, she says, like, you, when, you, when you find that kind of bubbly happiness arising in practice, one of the things I would tend to do with that is kind of, you know, go crazy and, you know, do two hours of yoga or run around the loop twice or something like that. Actually, what we need to do is to plow it back into the practice, to reinvest that energy that comes with the joy into the present moment and to learn how to use the sense of contentment to calm and to still, to soothe this mind and body. We can, so this moves into the, the next, the, the fifth of the factors of awakening, tranquility. It's not maybe a, a quality that's highly valued in our world and in our society. It's a kind of adult taste, isn't it? But it's a taste that we, we can really benefit from uh, cultivating to develop a taste for peace and calm. It's sort of like remembering to take the out-breath after the in-breath of inspiration. You know? So you could say piti or rapture is an inspired sort of mind. And it's like when I go, yes! You know? And then tranquility says, oh, breathe out, relax. So can we let happiness, when we catch it, be a cause for relaxation rather than for agitation or excitement. And then samadhi, stability, composure, collectedness, concentration, that unification of mind and body that we've been working on these few days. And as Yuka said yesterday, also as if the board members are kind of working together as one. Finally, the agitators have calmed down and there's a kind of unity of purpose to what's happening. The mind becomes collected around whatever we're attending to. So it's almost like we, we kind of... Um, the, the beam of our attention becomes stronger because it's not scattered and distracted. And all the practices that we've been doing of, of grounding, of anchoring really support the arising of this quality of concentration. And then, lastly, the seventh of these friends, these factors, equanimity, upeka. Upeka means, actually, the capacity to look over, to have perspective on what's happening, to take a long and broad view. And the two images that I, I, I really like to use in my mind for Upeka, the, the mountain, which may be familiar to many of you from MBSR, the mountain meditation, that sense of really 
being able to abide steady, rooted, calm in the midst of the changing weather patterns and the, the vicissitudes of life. Or also the image of a tree, a big sturdy tree with deep roots into the earth that actually maybe, maybe bends a little bit and waves and moves with the winds that blow, but it actually stays rooted. It comes back into balance. So you could say that upeka equanimity is like a, a, a balance or a non-reactivity of mind. And it's a very um, mature quality of heart and mind, isn't it? It's, it actually comes to fullness with the development of wisdom. It's the fruit of the clear seeing that's possible with samadhi. So there's the, the mind becomes like a, a still and reflective, you know, uh, clear water that actually accurately reflects what's there. So I also want to put in a, a little uh, plug for two background assistants that are there with these seven, seven committee members of the Awakening Factors. And one of them, was nicely mentioned this afternoon, is trust or faith. You know, some of us, maybe faith is not such a uh, you know, it has kind of complicated resonances, but the quality of trust is really, um, really important here. And actually, without trust, these other qualities can't really manifest. And then wisdom itself. And actually, trust and wisdom, in a sense, they, they, they are balancing qualities on either side of mindfulness. So it's wisdom that really, as I said, wisdom really enables equanimity to mature. So these, these seven factors, um, part of the practice is that they, they become stronger, they become more mature, but they also come into balance with one another. So we each have maybe different strong suits, you know, um, some of us may be more prone to the investigative uh, aspects of the mind. Some of us may have a, more of a natural propensity to tranquility or calm and, and not tend to be you know, so much on the investigative side. And one of the ways in which we practice with them is to... Um, Mindfulness actually can monitor, you know, is, is there a need for more energy here, for more curiosity? Or is there a need for more relaxation, for more ease? And the Buddha has this image of it being like knowing how to tend a fire. You know, if you want the fire to uh, brighten up and power up a bit, you need to put dry fuel onto it. If you need to calm the fire down, you put damp fuel onto it or you stop feeding it and we kind of tend to the balance of these awakening factors in the mind in the same way if you're feeling if you're feeling kind of very uh, very energetic and slightly agitated then more investigation is probably not so helpful as a calming practice if you're feeling very calm then very very earthy you might need to bring in more of the fire and the air elements, you know, to look at it in terms of elements. So to actually have a, begin to have a feel for this in our practice, what is it that, that's needed for me right now? So the, the reason that I've kind of brought in both the hindrances and the awakening factors is that there's a kind of dance between them and what I find really encouraging is the sense that we don't have to wait for the hindrances or for afflictive qualities in the mind to disappear before these awakening factors can come online, can begin to manifest. The task in the, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta in relation to the hindrances, I don't know if we've actually... Um, said this explicitly 
but is to simply to know when a hindrance is present and when it's absent. And then to know also with the data that we collect with our mindfulness, to come to know what feeds a hindrance to stay present and what, what supports it subsiding and how do I kind of guard against its re-arising. And this is the same whatever the hindrance is. And the hindrances and these awakening factors are fed or starved. Mm. They, they are grown or diminished depending on what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. And so um, I understand that when Yuka talked about hindrances the other afternoon, she didn't talk about the RAIN practice, but that some of you have been talking about this in the groups. How many people are familiar with RAIN as a practice? Probably lots of you. So this is the acronym um, of a a very skillful way to work with hindrances and other um, difficult mental states. And Chris has this wonderful thing of turning it wholemeal by putting a G in front of it, grounding and grain. And so, you know, we, we notice something or something's happening, we ground ourselves. And then we recognize, we identify what it is. You know, either either maybe it's easy to put a label on it or it's more nebulous, but we, we acknowledge its presence. And then the A, allow, to just let what's here be here for the time being. Uh, so we don't add this extra layer of contention with whatever's happening in our experience. And then the I for investigation. And the N is a really interesting one. So the N, we can talk about non-identification. This recognizing this is just a committee member. This is not me. This is not the CEO. Not me, not mine, as Chris was saying. Some people talk about the N as being nature, remembering that this arising quality is just an, an aspect of nature. Again, it's not personal to me. It's, it's something that afflicts all human beings. And we have the opportunity to give back to nature what we've taken from nature. And somebody just, just this past week told me that actually also Tara Brach, I think it's Tara Brach, talks about the end meaning nurture. The invitation to recognize, oh, there's some difficulty happening. What do I need What can I do to nurture myself in the midst of this? I think that's really skillful. Can you notice that when we start with it, when we apply this kind of a practice, we're already uh, using the awakening factors. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, and the willingness to stay present with what is. And so the hindrances or the difficult mental qualities become compost for the wholesome ones. There are some similes that the Buddha uses for this movement out of hindrance territory where he compares the the experience of being kind of caught in sense craving as being like like you're indebted to someone. If you think about, you know, when you're in debt, it's like the, the moment of freedom is somewhere in the future. When I've paid off the debt, then things will be okay. This is very much like that sense of when I get that, then I'll be okay. And then he talks about ill will as being like a disease, like feeling unwell, feeling physically unwell. And uh, feeling sloth and torpor being like you're in prison. Restlessness like enslavement, like you're kind of not your own master. You're running around from one thing to another on the whim of each restless impulse. And then um, doubt is being like in a desert where you don't know where you're going. And this is what, so this is what he has to say about it. 
He says, suppose that a person taking a loan invests it in their business affairs. Their business affairs succeed. They repay their old debts and there's extra left over. And then the thought would occur to them before taking a loan, I invested it in my business affairs and now my business affairs have succeeded. I've repaid my old debts and there's extra left over. And because of that, they would experience joy and happiness. Similarly, if somebody falls ill and they're in pain and seriously ill and then they recover and then the thought would occur to them, before I was sick, now I'm recovered from that sickness. I enjoy my food and there's strength in my body. Because of that, they would experience joy and happiness. If a person were in prison and then they found themselves released, the thought would occur to them, before I was in prison and now I'm released from that bondage, safe and sound, with no loss of my property. And because of that, they would experience joy and happiness. And so on. And so he says, in the same way, when these five hindrances are not abandoned in them, a practitioner regards it as a debt, a sickness, a prison, a slavery, or a road through desolate country. But when these five hindrances are abandoned in them, they regard it as unindebtedness, good health, release from prison, freedom, a place of security. Seeing that the hindrances have been abandoned within them, they become glad. Glad, they become enraptured. Enraptured, the body grows tranquil. Their body tranquil, they're sensitive to pleasure. And feeling pleasure, their mind becomes concentrated. So you can see how, with the skillful engagement with the hindrances, that actually we can move all the way down through this list of the awakening factors. You know, so we had mindfulness, investigation and energy or effort already present and then gladness comes on board. And when the mind is glad, this is something that's pointed out over and over again, the body relaxes, the mind becomes tranquil, concentration can develop and we can see clearly. So there's a sense in which each awakening factor evolves out of the one before it. So the task uh, of mindfulness with regard to the awakening factors is very much the same as with the hindrances, to know when one of these mind states is present, to know when it's absent, to know how, how it's uh, cultivated and how it's brought to fulfillment, to know how it's grown within the mind. And just as with the hindrances, the awakening factors are fed or starved depending on what we pay attention to or how. The Buddha says, I do not envision any one quality by which unarisen factors of awakening do not arise and arisen factors of awakening do not go to the culmination of their development like inappropriate attention. I do not envision any one quality by which unarisen factors of awakening arise and arisen factors of awakening go to the cult culmination of their development like appropriate attention. When a person's attention is appropriate, unarisen factors of awakening arise and arisen factors of awakening go to their culmination of development. So to actually really attune ourselves to the presence of these qualities, it's really helpful. Whatever we frequently turn our mind to and inhabit, that becomes the inclination or the tendency of the mind. There's actually uh, some lovely stories in the, in the early texts about the, when, when the Buddha or when his senior disciples were ill, there are a few occasions on which he actually called people to him to to talk to him about the awakening factors, about these mental qualities. And it's said that just listening to them discourse about these qualities, his fever abated and, they, uh, and the body was calmed and they actually recovered from their illnesses. And so there's a tradition of actually chanting about these qualities when a person is ill. Um,
It's also said that just as the dawn is the precursor to the arising of the sun, so good spiritual friendship is the precursor to the arising of the seven factors of awakening. So just having sort of really tried to make the point that this is a, is a long-term endeavor you know, um, and that we need to have a long view of practice. Also to, to say that paradoxically, there's also something very immediate about this. Um, the, the Dharma is spoken of as being something that is apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, onward leading and to be experienced individually by each of us. And so there's this, this paradox of it being something that's uh, onward leading and progressive, but also timeless and immediately visible. And these awakening factors, these qualities of the awakening and awakened mind can be switched on in any moment with the switch of mindfulness. So Gil Fronstel, who is a wonderful teacher in California, if you ever have the chance to listen to him or practice with him, he has some kind of cue words for each of these factors of awakening that I think are really, uh, really clever and really interesting. So the word for uh, mindfulness would be here. Remember to be here. That just invites a pause, doesn't it? I mean, we've been doing this. We've been kind of pointing this here, here, here all these last few days. And this, it stops us in our tracks. It connects us with the body. You know. Here we are on our ground. And we pause. As we were talking about the pause, or somebody was talking about the pause this afternoon, I, I remembered a, a teaching that a, the person I was teaching with just before Christmas shared that, uh, a suggestion that before you buy anything, pause and see if breathing is enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so skillful. And we could also apply that not just to literally shopping for things. But, you know, in any moment, well, before we buy into the next moment or buy into that impulse, we just pause and see if a breath would be enough. So, okay, okay, so mindfulness is here. I added pause. That's a red herring. Then investigation, what? What is this? What's happening? And then... Viria, energy, effort, persistence says, this is what's happening. Stay here, it's this. So we apply ourselves, there's this willingness to make contact with what's happening. And then this is where the the real kind of test is, are we still with the hindrances or, or have we kind of investigated our way beyond them? Have we, have we disidentified enough from them? Because the word for pity or rapture would be yes. Yes. I can say yes to this experience, to this moment. And if and when we find ourselves in that position, then the invitation is to tranquility. The word would be relax. So I've given it my yes. Now I can breathe out, relax. And then samadhi, steady. Steady, steady. And then last, the equanimity is the sense of it's okay. Yeah. What's here is okay. So here, what's here? This, yes, relax. Stay steady. It's okay. So again, this is a, something that one could play with. And maybe it also cycles back to the suggestion I made right at the beginning of the retreat about presence, 
ease possibility. Keeping open that sense of possibility because we don't know what the next moment will bring. So there's this, there's this beautiful shift that can happen with mindfulness out of the territory of stuckness in the hindrances into the mind that's waking up. I like the image of the door of a doorway, the sense that this moment is a doorway, you could say from past to future, but it's a, it's a liminal moment, it's a threshold And in any moment, we have the option whether we perpetuate clinging and distress or whether we even skip the present moment, don't even notice it, or we can dive into it completely and through the gateway into a moment of freedom. So... Gil Fronstel puts it this way. He says that in Buddhism, full awakening is being aware without clinging to anything. When the seven factors of awakening are developed, non-clinging becomes more and more natural. These factors of awakening, they provide a sense of inner treasure that's a welcome alternative to all forms of clinging to actually taste rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Much more satisfying than anything we could get out there, any momentary gratification or satisfaction. And so cultivating them, it helps us to grow our ordinary everyday capacity not to cling until it matures into an experience of lasting freedom. So maybe I'll just end with a couple more poems from the early nuns. We can sense that we're not only not alone in... uh, the horizontal aspect of time with the community of our contemporaries, but actually the sense of many, many people who've uh, undertaken this practice over millennia before us. This is a, a nun called Summer. After 25 years on the path, I'd experienced almost everything except peace. (laughs) When I was young, my mother told me that I would find true happiness only in marriage. Remembering her words all those years later, something in me began to tremble. I gave myself to the trembling, and it showed me all the pain this little heart had ever known, and how countless lives of searching had brought me at last to the present moment, which I happily married. (laughs) Can you imagine? We've been living together ever since without a single argument. I've got option paralysis, so two more. <laughs> this is another anyatara, which means anonymous. I was young when I left home, and for years I rambled around my practice, sitting, walking, and hoping. At first, everything was new. I didn't notice my skin drying up or my hair turning grey. Then one morning, there I was, an old woman, Where had I gotten in all those years on the path? That night I slept out in a field and it rained. I felt like I belonged there, miserable and alone in the mud. 
In the morning, I went to the nearest monastery and threw myself down. A nun took me in and taught me this body, this mind, this world, where they come from and where they go, what they are and what they are not. That night, I went to sit out, went out to sit in the field and it rained. I felt like I belonged there, every drop of water telling me I was home. Don't worry, my sisters. When the road reaches its end, you'll know it. And this last one, this is Rohini, wandering, wandering Star. You don't become the cloth just because you put on robes. You don't turn into empty space just because you carry a bowl. The sun doesn't bow down. Trees don't throw flowers at your feet. Birds don't start answering when you call. The path will hold even the biggest mistakes. The path will make room for even your deepest regrets. But you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. It can begin very quietly, something you barely even notice, like the touch of water on your skin, like a knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes, unless they're your last. The path isn't a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. You might get thrown back once or twice, but if you push through the outer layers, oh my sisters, then you will know the true welcome that is the very essence of this path. Let's just take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. Enjoy some walking now, and uh, we'll meet again for chanting and a final sit at quarter to nine. And tonight is the best vocals because we're going to record it, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I <don't> think <laughs> we have been recording it, but this is the this is the definitive one. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.